0: We're going to be in the uh, third chapter of Judges, just to give you a heads up. <clears throat> it's sort of amazing about the, the theme that seems to be this morning of, of sin and examine yourself and see where you are, because this this thing that Eric Fromm said that I think I mentioned a week or two or three or four ago, whatever, about the opposite of love is not hate, it's apathy. And so often that's the truth. Maybe not all the time. But I think it's very true for a lot of Christians. We become apathetic. Maybe lukewarmness is another word for it, for Christians, where we forget. And I see it all the way through the book of Judges, where the people became apathetic. They they didn't remember, or they didn't put any credence or any great worth into what God had done before. We see it, you know, that's why we're always called to draw closer to the cross, Because at the cross, if we really look at it with spiritual eyes, it shows how devastating sin is. It shows us what God thought of sin. It's so devastating, so horrible, that his son had to die. So that those that believe in him would live. And if you don't, then that sin is still heaped upon you. And it will destroy you eternally. Um, That's why... And we've become apathetic in things like communion. Because, you know, one of the key words in communion is remember. Don't forget what Jesus has done. Don't forget the cross. Don't forget his life. Because if you do... The danger is extreme. You will forget what he came to do. You will forget what he did. You will forget the devastation and the horror of sin, and you will think it's a little thing. And when you start thinking it's a little thing, you don't have any trouble indulging, participating, doing it. Unless it's a horror to us, the way it's a horror to God. And so often for me, it's not. And that's a terrible thing. I don't see it as the great horror that it is. And the cross reminds us of that. And communion reminds us of that if we will stop and really dwell on it. So I understand what's being said. And I hope that I can understand it in the depth of my heart rather than in my head that I don't lose it. Because so often we lose it. And again, in the book of Judges, they lost it constantly. Now, sometimes we forget that the book of Judges covers about a 330 or so period of time, so it's not like God did a wonderful thing today and they forgot it tomorrow. But as time goes on, it fades. And that's why we always say that miracles are not the thing that's going to make you believe, because you're going to forget. You're going to forget in a week, in a month, in a year, It's going to fade, and the power of the miracle is not going to have the same effect on you that it did when it first happened. This is why God will not share his glory with us. This is why, throughout the book of Judges, you'll see God raised them up, God raised them up, God raised them up. They didn't raise themselves up. God knows what the human heart is like. And you give us this much and we'll take credit for it. If he does 98% and we do too, we'll take credit. It won't be long before I know God did a lot but look what I did. That's It's that way in salvation. It's all of God. None of us. God is not going to share his glory because he knows we'll take credit for it. We'll tell others You know, God is really great. But I did a little bit. No, you didn't. You didn't do anything except sin. He's not going to share His glory with anybody because He knows what our hearts like. You know, history is um, supposed to teach us valuable lessons to keep us from making the same mistakes over and over again, that earlier generations made. And Paul recognizes this in 1 Corinthians 10, 1 through 3, when um, he remembers the Israelites' Red Sea crossing and their wandering in the wilderness. In verse 6 of 2 Corinthians 10, he says, Now these things occurred as examples to keep us from setting our hearts on evil things as they did. These things happened as examples. These things in the book of Judges also happened as examples. we got a whole book showing us the consequences of disobeying God and never learning, but continuing to walk in sinful behavior. Just as a brief recap, I'm going to read a couple of verses out of the second chapter. In chapter 2, verses 11 through 13, say, Then the sons of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals. And they forsook the Lord, their God, the God of their fathers, who had brought them out of the land of Egypt and followed other gods from among the gods of the people who were around them. And bowed themselves down to them. Thus they provoked the Lord to anger. So they forsook the Lord. And served Baal. and the Ashtaroth, The female deities. So that's what they did. If we've learned anything from the first chapters. The first two chapters of Judges. It's that sin is always a serious matter. To the children of God. And if we don't deal decisively with sin our lives are never going to experience the fullness of God's blessing. (laughs) The other day I was sitting on the porch and Anastasia came home from work and she says Dad I was listening to this radio program this Christian radio program and I don't understand something. She said there was a call in and the person on the, at the, on the program was answering questions. And the caller said, and you have to understand, all I know is what she told me. And sometimes she doesn't get things exactly right. And I told her that. So anyway, she says that the caller said something about a friend, smoked all the time and cursed, but called but called himself a Christian was he going to go to hell? And evidently, the person that was answering the question said yes, that that he would go to hell for that. Now again, you have to understand, I may not have gotten the whole story, I just got her version. But I said, Anastasia, that's not so. I said, now, if he doesn't change, maybe, uh, yes, he will. I said, but I said, you have to understand that what's in a person's heart's what comes out of their mouth. So if this characterizes his life and he keeps doing it, then he's in great, great danger. But you can't say because he's doing this now, he's going to go to hell. I said, if that were the case, most people I know are going to hell because they do some stuff every day that they shouldn't be doing. So you can't make quick judgments about this. You have to be, you have to warn people, you're walking on dangerous ground, and you need to examine your heart. But you can't be quick to make these judgments. You just need to be quick to make the warnings. So anyway, hopefully she got it right. Sometimes I don't know. But first of all, again, Sin is a serious matter to the children of God. And secondly, partial obedience, as we've said before, is disobedience. The only antidote to the constant downward spiral that we see in Judges is the constant application of 1 John 1.19. And it was mentioned this morning. And 1 John 1.19 says, if we confess our sins, He is faithful and righteous to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So the only antidote to sin is constant repentance. The first eight verses in the third chapter of Judges. We read these eight Judges before we ever get to an actual mention of one of the judges. So we get through two chapters and eight verses of the third chapter before we ever get to any of the judges in the book of Judges. The first verse <clears throat> in the third chapter tells us that the Lord left the nations, the pagan nations, in the promised land for purpose. And that purpose was to test Israel. First, to see how they were going to react to the temptations that these pagan nations provided and provoked them to day after day. And secondly, to teach Israel how to fight. Why do they have to teach them how to fight? Because the generations that had come through the wilderness and had, had been taught to fight and had fought had basically died out. And so now you've got a people that are not trained. They don't know how to fight. So they're going to learn how to fight because they have to learn how to fight because they've got all these pagan nations around them provoking them daily. Israel had come into the promised land with a mandate from God, with a command from God to drive out the Canaanites and to claim it as God's gift to them. The fact that the Canaanites are still there represents a test for them are they going to accept the lord as their king or not are they going to obey the covenant of god for his people or are they going to make a covenant with the canaanites and with the canaanite gods so the test is obedience to god to drive out the canaanites and obey all the commandments that their ancestors were given through moses this is what you get in the first four verses. Verses 5 and 6 in the third chapter read, The sons of Israel lived among the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. Does that help you? <laughs> so they took their daughters for themselves as wives and gave their own daughters to their sons And served their gods. This is what they did. They lived among all these pagan tribes. And they intermarried. So what we get in these two verses. Is a report card. That evaluates Israel. Israel it's a performance report card from God and Israel fails miserably the grade's pretty clear first, Israel settled down in the midst of the native pagan population and they list all these tribes because these tribes are all living in different places in the promised land so what this means is that everywhere Israel went they failed because everywhere they went They lived among these people that they were supposed to have driven out throughout the whole land. And second, they married with the Canaanites in direct violation of God's command. What happens when you intermarry? You lose your distinctiveness as a people. You begin to take on their values. You begin to take on their culture. And you begin to take on their God's. And throughout the book of Judges, you see examples of what happens when they intermarry with the Canaanites. And third, they serve their own gods, and we know what they're like. And the result of all this is that Israel's society becomes more and more like that of the Canaanites. Israel has sold out. the three verbs that you see in verses 5 and 6 they lived they married they served they served the other gods so all three verbs show what wicked they were they lived among them they married with them they served their gods peaceful coexistence with the world leads to cohabitation It leads to an alliance with the world and it leads to meshing with their religious beliefs. Theirs become yours. Yours rarely become theirs. Many times it appears that the nation of Israel is determined to destroy themselves. But God has chosen Israel to be the instrument of his blessing. And he is not going to let them die out and disappear. No matter how badly they do. God chose them. They're going to go through some awful things. All of them are not going to be saved. But he's not going to let them die and completely disappear. Verses 7 and 8 says the sons of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and forgot the Lord their God and served the Baals and the Ashtoreth. Then the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel so that he sold them into the hands of Cush Rishatham, king of Mesopotamia, and the third sons of Israel served Hushan Rishatham for eight years. They did evil, God sold them, he turned them over to this nation, to this king, this pagan king. This is the formula for much of Judges, forgetting the Lord and worshiping Baal. And when scripture says that Israel forgot the Lord, it doesn't mean that they had some kind of spiritual amnesia. What it means is that that God, they did not take God into account in all their thinking or any of their ways. It means, or forgetting the Lord is a synonym for sin. It's a synonym for turning away from the Lord. It doesn't mean they don't remember, they just don't care. It's apathy. It doesn't matter anymore. It's not a big deal. And the result was God's burning anger against Israel. And they're being sold into the hand of the king of Aram, which is Syria. For eight years. And now we finally get to the first judge of Israel, Othniel. You know, most of us have a pattern in mind, even if we don't admit it, of what kind of person you have to be in order for God to use you you got to have a certain amount of education you have to have a certain character you can't have these awful things in your background your family has to be decent on and on and on we have these thoughts in our mind I can't do this because blah because of past failures or whatever and usually this image we've got is a really hazy image we don't have it well defined about who it is that the the man that God can use but we just know it's probably not us the real problem is that we don't pay attention to what scripture says if we read scripture, scripture we quickly find out that we can't figure out God's pattern because it's all over the place as far as the way we look at it. He's a God of infinite variety, and he uses all kinds of people. And to prove this, all we have to do is look at the 11 men and one woman that are judges, because they're all over the place. Every one of them, each of them is very different in their personality and in their ministry. In fact, you don't have to go beyond chapter 3. Because there are three judges in chapter 3 and they're different. So, verses 9 through 11. When the sons of Israel cried to the Lord, the Lord raised up a deliverer for the sons of Israel to deliver them. Othniel, the son of Kenaz, Caleb's younger brother. The Spirit of the Lord came upon him, and he judged Israel. When he went out to war, the Lord gave Cushan Rishaphaim, king of Mesopotamia, into his hand, so that he prevailed over him. Then the land had rest for forty years, and Othniel, the son of Kenaz, died. Israel's under the domination of this king of Mesopotamia, this king of Aram, this king of Syria, for eight years. Rishathayim means double wickedness. Now how would you like to have a name that means double wickedness? This ought to give you an indication of what this guy was like. And finally Israel comes to their spiritual senses and they call out to God. We've been going through this for eight years. We're being devastated. So they call out to God for relief and in response God raises up the first judge, Othniel. Othniel is Caleb's nephew. And the passage says, the spirit of the Lord came upon him. Now, Othniel had a privilege that most people don't have. He grew up in a family that was famous. If you remember, Caleb and Joshua, Joshua were the only two people that said, we can go in and take this land, and all the rest of the spies said, we can't do it. But anyway, God blessed Joshua and Caleb above everybody else. Now they're in the land that they're in right now. Caleb, excuse me, Othniel's parents are surely dead because everyone from that generation died in the wilderness except Caleb and Joshua so Caleb more than likely raised his nephew if you look at scripture what scripture says about Caleb's life it's this he has followed the Lord fully now this is his uncle so In addition, there are other places where Scripture talks about Othniel's courage and his ability. So he had a lot going for him. In fact, the Jewish rabbis were so impressed with Othniel that they ranked him first among all the judges and applied to him the words out of Song of Solomon that says, You are altogether fair, my love. There is no flaw in you. So this is what the Jewish rabbi said about Othniel, the first judge. But all these things don't explain why God used him. Othniel didn't get his strength from his personal character or his family history. It was by the empowerment of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit worked through him and God's people had relief for 40 years. You know, a man like Othniel or anybody else might change a people for a while. But they can't guarantee what the next generation is going to look like. And the next generation did what they always did in Israel. They did what we always do today. We go downhill because we don't maintain it. We can't. So after 40 years, the cycle of sin started all over again. And this time, God raised up a judge entirely different than Othniel. Verses 12 through 14 read, Now the sons of Israel again did evil in the sight of the Lord. So the Lord strengthened Eglon, the king of Moab, against Israel, because they had done evil in the sight of the Lord. And he gathered to himself the sons of Ammon, and Amalek, and he went and defeated Israel, and they possessed the city of the palm trees. The sons of Israel served Eglon, the king of Moab, 18 years. You see how the progression, the first time they served this rotten king for 8 years. Then they had peace for 40. They went back and now they're serving 18 years under this new rotten king that oppresses them. You know, there's a world of difference between repentance and regret, as you well know. True repentance affects our heart and brings about a deep change. Regret is just sorry for what happened. We're sorry for the situation that sin has caused. And as soon as the situation changes, we go right back to where we were before because there's been no change in the heart. and it's hard to see any kind of national repentance in Israel because over these many many years there's no lasting change there's just a temporary change into the situation that caused the difficulties removed and then they gradually sink right back into it this time Israel's under the bondage to Eglon the king of Moab and we see that God is the one that brought this about. The verse says, the Lord strengthened Eglon. So here it is, God is strengthening this pagan king to subjugate Israel. Back in verse 8, we read, God sold them into the hands of Pushan. What's going on? God is taking these pagan kings and raising them up to punish his people because of their sin. It's all of God. All of it's God. God's the one that raises up these foreign kings. He's the one that raises up deliverers to get rid of these foreign kings. Because these foreign kings are punishing his people and they go further than what God wants and then he punishes these foreign kings. So you either do right in the sight of God or God takes care of it. Whether it's his people or somebody else. Sin is sin. It's the hand of God in judgment on the sin of his people. They didn't want to serve God so they ended up serving this pagan king. That's what happens. You're always going to reap what you sow. Eglon, the Moabite, linked himself with these other tribes, these other sects, Ammon, Ammon really. So he's a Moabite, and he links himself with the, Am- with the Amorites and with the Amalekites. And they defeated Israel and they set up their headquarters in the city of the palm trees. And that city is Jericho. The Moab people and the Ammon people are descendants of Lot. If you remember when Lot fled Sodom and Gomorrah with his wife, lost his wife because she looked back and got turned into a pillar of salt. And they go and they flee. Here's Lot, his two daughters. His two daughters to say, we don't have anyone to raise up a family. They get lot drunk. One night the elder daughter has sex with her father. Gets pregnant. The next night the younger daughter gets sex with her father. She gets pregnant. So the two, the two sons of Moab and Ammon. So these are the descendants. So there are distant relatives of Israel. And the Amalekites have always been enemies of Israel. So these are the people that have this alliance together that are subjugating Israel for 18 years. 15. But when the sons of Israel cried to the Lord, the Lord raised up a deliverer for them, Ehud, the son of Gera, the Benjamite, a left-handed man. You're not going to like what comes next, (laughs) Preston. And the sons of Israel sent tribute to him, to Eglon, the king of Moab. Ehud made himself a sword which which had two edges, a cubit in length, and he bound it on his right thigh under his cloak. He presented the tribute to Eglon King of Moab. Now Eglon was a very fat man. It came about when he had finished presenting the tribute, then he went away the people who had he sent away the people who had carried the tribute. But he himself turned back from the idols which were at Gilgal, and said I have a secret message for you, O king, and he said, Keep silence. And all who attended him left him. Ehud came to him while he was sitting alone in his own roof chamber, in his cool roof chamber. And Ehud said, I have a message from God for you. And he arose from his seat. Ehud stretched out his left hand and took the sword from his right thigh and thrust it into his belly. The handle also went in after the blade and the fat closed over the blade for he did not draw out the sword out of his belly. And the refuge came came out. This is even more graphic in the original language than it is in the English. So Israel cries out to God. And out of sheer grace, God answers them and sends them a deliverer. Ehud, a left-handed man. At first it seems kind of strange to put that phrase a left-handed man in there. Like what difference does that make? But there's an irony here since Ehud is from the tribe of Benjamin which means son of my right hand. And I saw this and I, I could have skipped it but I couldn't really because I knew Preston might be here. A man who is awkward or lacking in social skills. Is called. A gauche A ghost. Which is a French word. And it's a French word. That means left-handed. Something that is evil. Or foreboding. We call sinister. And that's a Latin word. For the left hand. But someone. With skill and ability. Is dexterous. And that's a Latin word. For right-handed. So. I'm sorry, Preston. We all been <laughs> now, we don't take this seriously, of course. But in Ehud's time, being left-hand was considered a defect. In some cultures, the place of honor was on the left side because it was your weak side and your unprotected side. But in spite of what may have been considered a defect, Ehud used it to a great advantage. Probably he was a prominent man in Israel. And we know this because he was in charge of taking the tribute to, I- to Eglon. And this would have been a considerable amount of money. The tribute, of course, is the taxes that he-, he levied on the people that he had conquered every year. So anyway, he carried the tribute, a good amount of money, And he would have been a man that was trusted by his own nation to be able to do this. He didn't have an army with him. So he carefully made a plan to accomplish his mission. And the mission was to assassinate Eglon, this hated conqueror of Israel. So he made a two-edged sword, a foot and a half long, 18 inches long. Two-edged because why? Because with two-edged, a two-edged sword, it's made for piercing, not for cutting. Okay, and he puts it on his right thigh. And he because if it's on his left thigh, that's where a right-handed man would reach for his sword. On his left thigh, that's where a left-handed man would reach. But a left-handed man is not considered a threat. It's a defect. So. the king would not have suspected any assault from someone that had a defect in his right hand. Additionally, the sword, like I said, normally would have been on his left side. That's where everybody carried it, and obviously there's no sword there. So Eglon, excuse me, Ehud, presents the tribute to Eglon, and he walks away with his people, who carries the tribute to the location that it talks about, and then he goes back and wants a private audience with the king. He declares that he has a secret message from God for the king, and the king in turn clears the room. So here is Eglon Eglon and Ehud together alone in the throne room. Now this is going to imply one of two things, and maybe both. First of all, either the king saw Ehud as absolutely no threat to him whatsoever because he was handicapped, and so he dismisses all the guards. The other possibility is that he was a very stupid man. And if you read some of of this in the original language, so I'm told, that's the way it's presented because the Israelites are making fun of this man for being fat and stupid, and his guards are not real bright either because they leave him alone alone. With somebody that obviously is a threat, could be a threat to him, an enemy. But anyway, maybe he's both. We don't know. But at any rate, Ehud declares that he has a message for God from the king, and the king gets up and moves toward him, and Ehud takes the sword and plunges it into the king's belly. And he plunges it in so far that the fat covers the haft of the sword and he can't pull it out, so he leaves it there. Verses 23 through 30 read, Then Ehud went out into the vestibule and shut the doors of the roof chamber behind him and locked them. Then he had gone out, or when he had gone out, his servants came and looked, and behold, the doors of the roof chamber were locked. And they said, He is only relieving himself in the cool room." They waited until they became anxious but behold he did not open the doors of the roof chamber. Therefore they took the key and opened them and behold their master had fallen to the floor dead. Now Ehud escaped while they were delaying and he passed by the idols and escaped to Sarah. It came about when he had arrived that he blew the trumpet in the hill country of Ephraim And the sons of Israel went down with him from the hill country, and he was in front of them. And he said to them, Pursue them, for the Lord has given your enemies the Moabites into your hands. So they went down after him and seized the the fords of the Jordan opposite Moab and did not allow anyone to cross. They struck down at that time about 10,000 Moabites, all robust and valiant men, and no one escaped. So Moab was subdued that day under the hand of Israel, and, that, and the land was undisturbed for 80 years. So these verses give us an explanation of what happened after the king was assassinated, and Ehud escaped, and how he was able to get so far away before the king was discovered. The doors are locked, they think he's using the facilities, we better not disturb him. And so they wait and wait and wait until they get to the point that they are afraid to wait any longer. They break in, they go in, and he's dead on the floor. And so nothing more is said about Ehud's left-handedness, which had been such a key to some of the earlier parts of the passage, now he functions as a typical military commander. And evidently the word of the assassination of Eglon had spread rapidly because when he blows the trumpets, the Ephraimites come to him, gather to him with their army. Verse 21 says about 10,000 Moabites were killed and no one escaped. So Moab was defeated and Israel had peace For 80 years. And just as we saw that it was the Lord. Who gave Israel over into the hands of their enemies. When they turned away from him. We see that it was the Lord that raised up deliverers. When Israel cried out to him. So it's always the Lord. Verse 9 says the Lord raised up Othniel to deliver Israel. And verse 15 tells us it was the Lord who raised up Ehud to deliver Israel. And verse 28 lets us know that Ehud recognizes that the Lord is the one who has given him the victory. That it wasn't his own strength. (coughs) We don't always see these from some of the judges. They don't always recognize that it's God, or at least not very much. Ehud knows that it was not his cleverness, it was not his great competency as a military leader, but it was the power of God that caused Moab to be plundered, that produced the results. And God has been yet again gracious. To an undeserving people. Finally in verse 31. It tells us about the next judge. Shamgar. And scripture gives him one whole verse. And it reads. After him came Shamgar the son of Anath. Who struck down 600 Philistines with an oxygote. And he also saved Israel. Now what we can get out of this one verse shows you the variety of the Lord, that he's not stuck in a pattern, that he can use anyone. What we know is that Shamgar lived at a time when the Philistines were beginning to have a presence in Israel. Later on, they became a great threat. But here, they're a threat, but not the threat that they became later. And what's interesting is that Shamgar is not a Hebrew name. It's a Canaanite name. And his father's name is Anath. And Anath is the name of a Canaanite God. It's the name of the Canaanite God of sex and power. And sex and war and power. So likely he was a convert to the Lord. A Canaanite that was a convert. He was also probably a peasant because his weapon was an ox goad and an ox goad is a piece of wood a stick or whatever about six to eight foot long that's got um, a sharp point on one end and a cutting edge on the other to use to clean the plow and this is what he used to kill 600 philistines Peasants used this when they were driving their oxen. So what do we see in Judges? We see the sovereignty of God on display. It pervades the whole book from the beginning to the end. Even in and through Israel's rebellion, God is faithfully working out his purposes on their behalf. Israel is the covenant people of God. He's not going to let them go. Severely discipline them? Yes. Is he going to be really rough on them for sinning? Yes. But abandon them finally? No, he will not. And it's exactly the way with the church. Sin brings chastisement. Sometimes severe chastisement. But he's never going to abandon the church. Finally, Hebrews 13, 5 and 6 reads this. Keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? Let's pray. I think that's a question, Lord, that every one of us need to keep in the forefront of our hearts and minds. What can man do to me? Am I going to be concerned about what's right in the side of the world when the world tells us to do things that are contrary to what you've called us to do and be? Are we going to fear man or are we going to fear God? Are we going to do right in your sight side, side or evil in your sight? Are we going to repent when we do wrong, or are we going to just have regrets when sin overtakes us? Lord, I pray that we would repent deeply in our hearts for the things that offend you, for the things that uh, cause us to walk in a way that's an affront to your good name, to your holy character. And Jesus, I just pray that uh, all of us would truly ask you, what's your plan for our life now? And that it would be a delight to our souls. We ask it in the name of Jesus. Amen.